0: Great. hello and welcome to the Middle East Forum speaker webinar series. I'm Stacy Roman and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Ali Afonay, a senior fellow at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington join us to discuss Iran after Khomeini. Mr. Afonay will speak for 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type out your question. And with that, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ali Afonay.
1: Thank you very much. Good afternoon uh, to you all, ladies and gentlemen. uh, And thank you very much for your kind invitation. Thank you for providing me with this opportunity to share my analysis uh, video. Uh, A few months ago, I uh, published this little book called Political Succession in the Islamic Republic. And the reason for that was uh, the wild rumors that we hear and we see uh, on the Persian language internet media on the internet and, and uh, everywhere else, uh, whenever Mr. Khamenei is absent from the mass media for a couple of days. Uh, and soon we hear about his cancer, we hear that he possibly is dead or, or on his deathbed. Uh, but every single time throughout the years that we have heard those rumors, uh, Mr. Khamenei miraculously managed to, to, to resurrect uh, and he was back in business. Uh, However, uh, I thought that it is uh, relevant to know what will happen uh, if and when Mr. Khamenei uh, passes away, Uh, how will it impact the political system, who will succeed him in office as the leader of this Islamic Republic and what mechanisms uh, would be uh, at play under such circumstances. So I wrote this book, uh, but I also need to, to disappoint you because I will not be mentioning names of specific individuals whom I believe are going to be the leader of the Islamic Republic. I think it's much more interesting to know the mechanisms and the centers of power and those capable of dominating the process of electing the next leader uh, and to which uh, faction the next leader will belong. Uh, I think it's much more difficult to be quite honest with you, uh, rather reckless from a research point of view uh, to um, mention one specific individual whom I believe is going to be the next leader. Uh, That I think is still not uh, known, but we can return to this in the Q&A section. Now, in my little uh, presentation today, I will try to answer three questions. Uh, The first question is, what is the function and the role of the leader in the Islamic Republic's political system. Next, I will be discussing how that leader is elected. And finally, I will discuss uh, and answer the question what we can expect the day that Mr. Khamenei is uh, no longer among us. Now, the first question concerning the functions of the leader of the Islamic Republic. Uh, According to the constitution of of the Islamic Republic, uh, Mr. Khamenei is the leader of the regime until the day that the Messiah returns. So in other words, the constitution of the Islamic Republic is only valid between now and the day of reconning and return of the Shia Messiah, after which the, the constitution will no longer be valid and the leader will no longer be the leader of the regime because on that day, uh, the regime claims uh, the Messiah will be the head of state of Iran and will start a world revolution you know, and, and and all those apocalyptical uh, descriptions that we see in, in, in Shia uh, theological uh, literature. Uh, the leader of the Islamic Republic, according to the constitution, has also many of the powers and attributes that the head of the executive in the United States political system has. So he's the one appointing many of the important individuals. Uh, however, the leader uh, has more or less no responsibility. So he has power, but he is not accountable to the people. And the reason for that is that the systems ideology is based on the theory of the uh, the uh, um, uh, or a system of the, uh, the um, guardian. Uh, the uh, idea is that the supreme jurist, uh, the guardian jurist, uh, rules the people and he cannot be elected by the people because the people of course do not know what is good for them. Uh, The foundations and historical roots of this theory are actually based in Plato and Mr Khomeini, the founder of the Islamic Republic and the main theoretician of the regime, uh, he was very deeply Uh, influenced by the thinking of Plato. He believed in the idea of a philosopher king and he feared uh, the demagogues. So if the people get to decide who their leader is, uh, then they can be deceived by the demagogues. This is also a critique that you hear uh, and you see when reading uh, Plato's Republic. So Mr. Khamenei, Mr. Khomeini and after him, Mr. Khamenei, they are the guardian jurists of this regime and they are not elected by the people. They are elected by a small group Uh, of individuals clerics uh, uh, from an institution uh, called the guardian, uh, uh, the the assembly of experts. Now, this is the theory, and this is not so terribly important, you know, you can read this in, in the constitution. The practice of power is much more important because the role of the leader in this system is to be the final arbiter of the conflicts between different and competing power systems in the regime. So in other words, the Iranian political system is not like Iraq under Saddam Hussein. There is no pyramid. There are multiple power centers. It is also not like like Iran during the Shah's era, where you have a pyramid model, the Shah on the top of the system. The leader is the leader of many different parallel Institutions which are meant to keep each other in check. And the idea of having multiple power centers is to avoid a coup. Uh, After the revolution, the system was afraid that surviving institutions, you know, institutions which were founded by the Shah's regime, would start a coup against the revolutionary regime. So, for each institution of state, the Islamic Republic created a counterpart, which was a so-called revolutionary counterpart. So for example, we have on the one hand, the regular military, and then we have the revolutionary guard. The revolutionary guard's function is to keep the regular military in check. The function of the besiege militia is to keep the police in check, uh, and, and so on and so on. For each institution of state, there is a counterbalancing institution. But of course, nowadays, there is no such a thing as non revolutionary, it is all the same, you know, they all belong to the same family. However, the Islamic Republic finds it expedient to maintain the rivalry between the various centers of power, so that no power center becomes too strong. And the function of Mr. Khamenei is to give support to the weaker institution in order to keep the balance between them. To avoid a coup within the system. So that is the role of the leader. Next, we go to the question of how is the leader elected? Well, the leader, we have one set of rules according to the constitution, but in reality, it reflects the balance of power within the system. So in other words, we cannot expect the rules to be respected. The day that Mr. Khamenei dies, and someone else needs to be elected. The person who will prevail in the struggle for power and the struggle for succession after Mr. Khamenei is also the, the individual who enjoys support from the most important power systems, you know the parallel institutions that I mentioned to you. In other words, if the power of the revolutionary Guard is bigger than other institutions, then the candidate supported by the Revolutionary Guard is also likely to be the next leader of the Islamic Republic. This is actually how Mr. Khomeini got elected in uh, 1989, after the, the passing of Mr. Khomeini. But back then, it was not the Revolutionary Guard which was the dominant power center. The power center back then, in 1989, uh, was a group of clerics, but also civil servants Around the circle of Mr. Rafsanjani, Mr. Rafsanjani was this brilliant kingmaker of the regime. He was a practitioner of politics, uh, the likes of which we really do not have today in in Iran. And he managed to manipulate all power centers so that he could have his own candidate, meaning Mr. Khamenei, positioned as a compromise candidate for leadership after Mr. Khomeini. Mr. Khomeini was perceived as everyone as a weak leader. Mr. Rafsanjani managed to get support from the clerics but also other institutions of the state and Mr. Khomeini became the leader. Despite the fact that he lacked many of the qualifications required for being a leader according to the constitution. According to the old constitution from 1979, a leader of the Islamic Republic had to be a source of emulation. In other words, one of the highest ranking positions in the Shia uh, clerical establishment. Mr. Khamenei was a mid-ranking cleric. Uh, However, what they did was to first elect Mr. Khamenei leader and once he was elected leader, they changed and revised the constitution so it suited Mr. Khamenei. In other words, Leadership in the Islamic Republic is a rope that you always adjust to the leader who has real power and is already elected. It is not that you follow the rules and find an individual who has the body and and the body shape to to, 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 to be in, in, in the suit of leadership according to the constitution. The constitution is always retroactively changed to be in accordance with the candidate elected. The same will also be the case after the passing of Mr. Khamenei. And now we come today the, to, to the final discussion uh, about what is likely to happen when Mr. Khamenei is no longer us. Now, I told you about the competing centers of power in the regime and how the IRGC has become the most important power center. The reason for that is really simple. Mr. Khamenei ideally should support the regular army to keep the Revolutionary Guard in check. However, he has been pressured by outside by the sanctions regime from the United States. He has faced a military threat and within the system, he no longer enjoys popular support. The Iranian public does not support Mr. Khamenei. And we have seen again and again, popular uprisings and protests against Mr. Khamenei and his regime. So Mr. Khamenei has become more and more reliant on support from the Revolutionary Guard to secure the survival of his regime, to to secure him and to protect him against external pressure from the US and the domestic pressure from the Iranian public. However, when you no longer respect the old rule of balance of power between the competing institutions, but you rely more and more on one institution. That one institution also gets to dominate the system. And this is what has happened with the Revolutionary God. In return for supporting Mr. Khamenei, Revolutionary God has demanded economic monopolies. So it is is no longer just a military. It is also an economic powerhouse. It is the largest contracting company in Iran. The Revolutionary Guard is not just a foreign intelligence organization. It is also active in domestic intelligence collection. It is not just uh, engaged in operation, operations outside of Iran and defending the country against external enemies. Its garrisons are in city centers and its primary job nowadays is actually protecting the regime against the angry public, which is unhappy and unsatisfied with the regime. Therefore, the revolutionary Guard, this time around when Mr. Khamenei is no longer among us is going to play more or less the same role that Mr. Rafsanjani's network played back in 1989. In other words, they get to manipulate, they get to influence, and in reality they are going to dictate who is going to be the next leader of the Islamic Republic. The next leader of the Islamic Republic is not just going to be elected by the assembly of experts, 88 elderly clerics choosing, electing one among them to be in the next leader, no those clerics are going to be held hostage by the Revolutionary Guard, and they more or less need to do as the Revolutionary Guard says. Now, the Revolutionary Guard has also other options. It could say that, well, the clerical system is now a liability. It is no longer benefiting us because the clerics are no longer enjoying popularity among the public. So we're going to abolish the system, make Iran a naked, Military dictatorship. But that model, I think, I think it's too soon for that. I'm not sure that they have reached that conclusion. But if and when they reach the conclusion that the clerics are a liability, they may actually move away from the uh, uh, guardianship of the Jewish model and make Iran a naked military dictatorship. But I'm not sure that they have reached that conclusion yet. Another option which has been mentioned is that Iran is going to have a collective leadership, meaning that, you know, we're not going to have one leader, we are going to have a group of three clerics being the leaders. But that model has also been uh, uh, criticized, and I think is uh, uh, also a difficult model. What I believe is uh, that the revolutionary guard for now is going to keep the uh, uh, the system, and is going to have one of its own candidates as uh, elected as as the next leader. But for for all practical purposes, the next leader is going to be beholden to the revolutionary guard. And this is my introduction. I'm looking very much forward to your questions, and will try to answer them to the best of my ability. And please feel free, you know, I know that you have you have great interest in specific individuals. I will try to answer those questions concerning Mr. Khamenei's sons and, and, and the rest of it. Thank you.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much. So you just mentioned specific names. One of our questions in is, can you talk about the leaders of the Revolutionary Guard?
1: Yes. So Mr. Hossein uh, 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 Salami, who is the current leader, uh, is sometimes portrayed as a, a very important individual who makes the decisions for the system. Or uh, the gentleman, uh, Mr. Ghani, who is the head of the Quds Force of the Revolutionary Guard, the Jerusalem force, uh, the part of the Revolutionary Guard which is engaged in extraterritorial operations uh, against Iran's uh, um, competitors, foreign competitors and enemies. Now. But just as the system in the Islamic Republic has many power centers and they all need to agree before policy decisions can be made, the same applies to the Revolutionary Guard. The Revolutionary Guard is not dependent on one individual. We have, have a group of commanders who are veterans of the Iran Iraq war. And there is some kind of a collective leadership within the Revolutionary Guard, which is making the decisions for this enormously complex organization. It would be wrong of us just to focus on Mr. Salami, who is the chief commander of the Revolutionary Guard. It would be wrong of us just to focus on Mr. Ghani, who is the commander of the host force. What we need to know is to try to find out who are the members of the collective leadership of the Revolutionary Guard and what decisions they made. I wrote an article some years ago, but I think the point I made in that article are still relevant. I'm urging you to take a look at that. The name of the article is uh, The Network of uh, um, Major General Soleimani. In that network, uh, I try to identify, I, I develop a methodology. I look at two public letters signed by a group of commanders. And I take a look at who those commanders are And how many of those commanders are signatories of uh, both uh, letters? Letter number one was published in 1997. It was a letter of protest against removal of the chief commander of the Revolutionary Guard. And that was an open letter written to Mr. Khamenei. The second letter was published in 1999 during the student uh, uprisings in Iran. Uh, uh, where Mr. Khatami, President Khatami, uh, was reluctant to suppress the the, the protests. And a group of uh, IRGC commanders signed a public letter saying that if the government is not going to suppress the demonstrations, they are going to do it. In reality, it was a threat of a a coup d'etat. So if you look at the combined names of the people who are signatories of both letters, you more or less have the collective leadership of the revolutionary Guard. So we need a methodology to find out who constitutes the group. And then we need to take a look at the individual members. That is much more interesting than looking at the individuals, individual leaders within the
0: organization. Thank you so much. And if Iran becomes a military dictatorship, uh, will Iran still be ideological in your view or will its current Islamic ideology go away?
1: Um, Right now, Uh, the people who are members of this collective leadership of the revolutionary guard, their youth was spent during the Iran-Iraq war. This is what their thinking is. And it is very difficult for that generation to completely break away from ideology. Because if you do not have the ideology, uh, then how can you legitimize your rule? Uh, This is also why I am slightly reluctant to think that in spite of the fact that clerics no longer uh, are, are benefiting the regime and, and the ideology is totally corrupted, it is bankrupted in reality. The regime is economically and ideologically bankrupted, but they cannot completely break away from it. Why? Because they need a source of legitimacy. If you look at other undemocratic institutions, such as the institution of the monarchy, let's say the British monarchy, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth is queen by the grace of God. Who says that she is queen by the grace of God? Church of England. And she also happens to be the head of the Church of England. So you need, you know, she needs Her Majesty, the Queen of England, she needs the institution of the clergy to legitimize her rule. Otherwise, how can she claim that she's better than any private citizen in Britain? The same thing applies to the Revolutionary Guard. They cannot just say that we are a military dictatorship and we are legitimate. For now, I think they are dependent on ideology and on the clergy. So it would be difficult for them to break away from ideology, ideology immediately. It will take some time, and I also suspect it will take a different generation of revolutionary god commanders who legitimize themselves by other means. For example, by saying that we are doing something for the economy, of or we are making, you know, I don't know, life easier for Iranians, or we are capable of defending the country against foreign enemies. You need to find an alternative source of legitimacy. And then you can break break away from from the original ideology.
0: So along those lines, uh, you mentioned that the clerics aren't so popular right now, but how popular is the Revolutionary Guard?
1: For some time, the Revolutionary Guard enjoyed greater respect than the clerics for the simple reason that many Iranians uh, perceived them as people who did all sorts of self-sacrifice during during the Iran-Iraq war. those soldiers who sacrificed everything, you know, people respected them. But against that, works two other mechanisms. One is that the leadership of the Revolutionary Guard, and particularly the Revolutionary Guard in its entirety, has become so much involved in the economic corruption. You cannot have a business in Iran without the Revolutionary Guard having a part of your business and benefiting economically from your business that makes them rather unpopular, because people also begin to see them as part of the corrupt practices. That is one problem that they have. The second problem that they have is that the Revolutionary Guard, against its will, had to face down the domestic protests, had to suppress domestic protesters, and it had to fight against two different types of protesters. First, it had to fight against let's say upper middle class people in big cities who demand freedom. Those were the protests in 1999 in Tehran, but also in 2009 after the fraudulent presidential election. But even more unfortunate from their point of view, from the viewpoint of the revolutionary God, they also had to suppress poor people who went to the, to the streets to protest against their economic, miserable economic conditions because they were hungry. And and these are the more recent protests that we have seen and Iran has experienced during the U.S. maximum pressure campaign. And it is, of course, extremely unfortunate from the viewpoint of the revolutionary God that they have been involved in, in, in those practices. And it's very hard for them. And they try also extremely hard not to get directly involved. They want to Put somebody else in front of the protesters, you know, the Basij militia, or even better, the regular police. But when the survival of the regime is at stake, there is really no other place and no other institution than the revolutionary got to do it, and they had to do it. And and this has cost a lot when it comes to their popularity, because the same national hero who defended the country against the Iraqi invasion is now perceived as both corrupt, but also as a force of oppressing
0: Iranians. Understood. And can you comment on the likely prospects for Khamenei's sons and, or son, and could he, is Khamenei working to swing who would take over after him?
1: The only reason why we hear about Mr. Mostafa Khamenei, you know, they, one of the sons of Mr. Khamenei, not the oldest one uh, as a potential leadership candidate is that he is often uh, compared, and I think incorrectly, compared with Mr. Ahmad Khomeini, son of Mr. Khomeini. Uh, Mr. Khomeini, when he took power, uh, he became the, the, the leader of the Islamic Republic and the founder of the Islamic Republic. He was an elderly gentleman. And you know, just a few months after the revolution, he suffered a massive heart attack. And, and, and the system really feared that he could pass away any moment. Uh, Ahmad Khomeini functioned as his chief of staff He was more or less, you know, for all practical purposes. He was the leading force within the office of Khomeini, and he was also the gatekeeper. So if you wanted to arrange a meeting with Mr. Khomeini, you had to go through Ahmad Khomeini. That gave him a unique position within the the Islamic Republic uh, during the first 10 years of of the history of the Islamic Republic from 79 to 89. and Mr. Rafsanjani and Mr. Khomeini's luck back then was that they managed to make a deal with Mr. Ahmed Khomeini. So the three of them became the gatekeepers to Mr. Khomeini and they also managed that monopoly like access to Khomeini and that position of power to preparing the path of Mr. Khomeini's road to leadership. But back then something really interesting happened because Mr. Khamenei and Mr. Rafsanjani, they managed hoodwink Ahmad Khomeini. They promised Ahmad Khomeini that when your father dies, he will make you leader, but they cheated him. They used Ahmad Khomeini to outmaneuver all their competitors, all their uh, political rivals. But as soon as Mr. Khomeini died, they f- simply forgot Mr. Ahmad Khomeini. And they made Khamenei leader. And a few years later, Mr. Ahmad Khomeini died under very, very mysterious circumstances. Now, I suspect that the people who are talking about Mr. Mustabal Khomeini's leadership are committing a historical fallacy and a mistake. They think that he's playing the same role as Mr. Ahmad Khomeini during the first 10 years of the Islamic Republic. I do not believe this is the case. And even if this is the case, even if if Mr. Mustafa Khomeini, whom nobody knows, we even do not know his physical presence. You can look at the Iranian media. You do not, you have no idea where this individual is. You don't know where he eats his lunch. You don't know he has never held public office. There is no accountability. We know nothing about this gentleman. So the people, who, if if he is used instrumentally now to get access to Mr. Mr. Khamenei, there is no guarantee that he will be the leader. Uh, so, so I, I am very ske- skeptical about, about the the you know the, the the role that is usually ascribed to
0: Mr. Mostafa Khamenei these days. Thank you. And what are the prospects for moder- moderation in Iran after Khamenei uh, versus if? External enemies such as the U.S., Israel, and the Arab Gulf states, uh, or would it go the opposite way?
1: Uh, so one of the one of the uh, mistakes that some of my colleagues commit, and they, they do it systematically. They have done it systematically in the course of the past forty odd years. You know, is that they're trying to find the moderate, the pragmatist, but also the radical. You know, and 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 the fundamentalist. Uh, The truth, of course, is that every single player in in, in the Islamic Republic uh, has all the elements in him. And and, and at times a person can be moderate and pragmatist. And at times that same person emerges as as, as a radical leader, you know, and, and as a fundamentalist. So it has all to do with political expediency of that individual and the power center that the individual represents. Just take a look at Mr. Khamenei. He is perceived as a hardliner, you know, and mistakenly, you know, everybody talks about him as a hardliner, you know, nowadays in America. But these things are completely wrong. Mr. Khamenei was heavily involved in the Iran contra affair in the 1980s. He was one of the few people who managed to import from Israel during the Iran-Iraq war, spare parts for Iran's military He negotiated with the Americans, and he was involved in everything. So in that sense, back then, he was a moderate. The people who were radical back then were the people like, you know, Granatole Montazori, who on human rights issues, uh, everyone perceives him uh, as as a a moderate. And and, and by the way, you know, a, a very deeply moral man. But when it came to foreign policy, he was the most radical of the radicals. So people change according to their, uh, uh, what they perceive as as what what is expedient for them. There is no person who is a radical, another person is is modern. The same thing applies for, 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 for the regime in its entirety. What counts most for the Islamic Republic, in spite of the ideology and everything else, is survival. So if survival of the regime dictates importing Israeli spare parts for Iran's weapon systems, this is exactly what they do. If the expediency of the regime dictates that they should have a more or less permanent military presence in Syria, threatening Israel and using it as a deterrence, military deterrence against Israel, this is exactly what they do. This is how I perceive the system.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much. And for our last question, can you give some suggestions as to how the U.S. government could positively influence this transition? The United
1: States uh, has, has some difficult choices to, to make uh, because, uh, on the one hand, you know, let's be honest, Iran is not the biggest problem for the United States. Iran may be a big problem for Israel. You know, Iran may be a big issue for Saudi Arabia, for UAE, some of the other neighboring countries, but for the United States, Iran is nothing. Iran is not an important country. Uh, if the United States wants to have an activist policy in the Middle East region, Wants to have a very active presence, then Iran becomes a bigger issue because the Islamic Republic does not tolerate that presence and wants to minimize, especially the military presence of the United States. And the reason for that, by the way, is very simple. You know, if the United States is no longer present in the Middle East region, Iran emerges as a regional great power. As long as the US is present, Iran is a small dwarf. So it makes sense from Iran's point of view to expel other you know, superpower like, like United States from, from Middle East region. So if the U.S. opts for an activist Middle East policy, then Iran and U.S. will be in a conflict course. And U.S. Also has also an interest in trying to play a role when it comes to, to leadership uh, uh, change in Iran. The U.S. Has, has several ways to go. One option is that, well, we actually think that the clerics are the best choices for the U.S. We know who they are. We have dealt with them before. We know that sometimes they are lethal. You know, they kill Americans. At other times, we can align our interests. Uh, So we would like to maintain the present system, and and one of the ways of doing so is helping the likes of Mr. Hassan Rouhani, the current president of the Islamic Republic. If he manages to get sanction relief until the June uh, um, 2021 uh, presidential election in Iran he still has a chance of playing a role, not only of helping one of his colleagues or one from his own network to become the next president of Iran, but also to play some kind of a role, perhaps not a decisive role, but some kind of a role in the leadership of the Islamic Republic after Mr. Khamenei. That's, that's one option. Another option is that you know, the, the United States says, well, it seems as if the IRGC is going to control the leadership process the clerical, uh, the clerical elites are not strong enough to influence that process. So we need to try to find out what we can do with these IRGC commanders and officers. The best way, of course, is to have Uh, open paths of negotiation, direct lines of contact. Those lines need not be public. The U.S. government can can have other means of communicating with the IRGC. It has done before. In Afghanistan, in Iraq, and elsewhere, there have been some lines of communication between the U.S. military and IRGC. Those contacts can be revived and reactivated. But I do not see a, a way for the U.S. to decide, you know, uh, the next, who is going to be the next leader of the Islamic Republic. Although within Iran, some people may think that the U.S. has, has those fantastical powers. I, I think that the U.S. Uh, options are, are, are broadly limited. Uh, but the question is uh, who the U.S. can best cooperate with. And, and I don't rule out that the U.S can engage in negotiations with the IRGC, but of course also realize that at, when, when it comes to certain certain policy agendas, uh, there are uh, totally uh, opposing interests uh, between the two countries. Uh, f- fundamental, you know, most fundamental of the of them all is that the Islamic Republic does not want to have a U.S. presence in, in the Middle East region. So that it, it itself, you know, can emerge as, as a regional great power. This is not possible as long as the U.S. is there. And, and, and the U.S as I see it right now, you know, has, has uh, no intention to leave the Middle East region. So, 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 so those certain conflicts are going to continue. Other con- con- uh, conflicts can be managed uh, and, and, and the Islamic Republic's weaknesses can be taken advantage of by, by any administration. Uh, I think that the Islamic Republic's influence in this region has peaked. And from now on, there will be uh, great difficulties, uh, but we shall see in the coming years.
0: Thank you so much. And we have quite a few unanswered questions. If you could just refresh our audience's memory, uh, where can we find some more information on what you spoke about today?
1: Uh, the audience is most welcome to, uh, to take a look at my, my book, Political Succession in the Islamic Republic. It was published by the Arab Gulf States Institute in, 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 in Washington. Uh, if the audience Googles my name, you can find my, my uh, website on the AGSIW uh, website, and also my older writings. Uh, and otherwise, you're more than welcome to follow me on Twitter, you know, so by my family name and, and, and you could find all my new publications. And thank you very, very much for the opportunity you gave me today.
0: Of course, thank you, Mr. Alcone, uh, for taking time to speak with us. Uh, for our viewers, please be on the lookout for our weekly webinar offerings email coming out over the weekend. Thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a wonderful day.